Hello, crime historians, and welcome back to another podcast of A Crime Story. I'm your host, Kaylin Lois, and I'm originally from the United States, but now I live in France, and I am studying to be an international lawyer. I have always been a fan of true crime, and when I moved here, I just started hearing these insane crime stories that I never heard of back in America, so I created a crime story podcast to tell you all about it. So, without further ado, let's just hop into today's story, which is from Australia and was actually suggested to me by a listener. So, I did not know anything about this story until I started researching it for this podcast, and I have never heard a crime story like it. It is insane, and I can't wait to tell you all about it. So, let's go. Our crime story today takes place in the land down under Australia. And as always, let's start with exploring the legal system. Australia operates as a constitutional monarchy with a combination of inherited laws from Britain, known as English common law, and numerous statutes that have been enacted by various states and the federal government. The country's legal system comprises of written constitution, unwritten constitutional conventions, statutes, regulations, and judicially determined common law. The High Court in Australia is the highest court, much like the equivalent to the U.S. Supreme Court. And while researching this case, I discovered some really crazy, interesting stories. So expect some more Australian episodes to come your way. Now, I want to set a bit of geographical background on Australia's Northern Territory before I hop into the crime story. The Northern Territory is in the center north of the country and home to the famed Australian outback in the iconic Ayers Rock or Uluru. Very few people live in the Northern Territory, which is a vast territory of around 1.3 million square kilometers. In fact, more people actually live in Tasmania than they do the Northern Territory because of the just very unforgiving nature of the land. The city of Darwin, which is located at the top of the territory, serves as the capital of the Northern Territory. The major towns locate along the Stewart Highway, which is a large road running across the center of the country from Darwin to Port Augusta. And if you just take a map and like literally split the country of Australia in half, well, the main continent anyway, it's just, it runs right through that, uh, the Stewart Highway. Now, tourism runs the Northern Australia economy, and just under half a million people flock there every year to go see the Outback, which just sounds like a dream vacation to me, but maybe not after this story. (laughs) Anyway, so now with some legal and geographical backgrounds, let's move on to the disappearance of Peter Falconio and the attempted abduction of Joanne Lees. Now, Peter Falconio was born in 1972 as the third born of four sons to a family living in West Yorkshire, England, which is kind of close to Manchester. Known as the intelligent class clown sort of type, Peter studied construction in college while working part-time jobs to pay his way. After college, he landed a job and bought a house in West Yorkshire in 1996. 
Soon thereafter, he met Joanne Lees while at a nightclub, and Joanne was born to a single mother in 1973 in New Yorkshire. Her mother later remarried and had a second child who was a son, so Joanne had a half-brother. The working-class family made ends meet, and Joanne, known for her shyness, worked as a travel agent when she met Peter. The couple soon became inseparable right after they met and started to plan a life together, and they even moved to Brighton, England for Peter's education. They desired to travel, which I completely understand, I do too, and took some small vacations, but in 1998, they started planning like a long, massive trip to take together. Peter and Joanne applied for and received a working holiday visa for Australia. This visa allowed the couple to stay in Australia for up to a year while working half-time. Both sets of parents expressed reservations to their plans as a series of crimes had recently occurred in Australia. And these weren't small crimes either. They included the backpacker murders, which included two British victims, a fire at the Childers Palace Backpackers Hostel, and the murders in Port Arthur. But Joanne and Peter reassured their parents of their invisibility, and off they went. Before arriving to Australia, they visited Nepal, Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, and Cambodia, which sounds incredible. But in fact, in Cambodia, they hit a bit of a rough patch because someone stole their traveler's checks and return tickets. When they arrived to Australia, a first world English-speaking country, it provided the couple with like a level of comfort. In her book, Joanne stated that they next planned to go to New Zealand after Australia and then head to Bora Bora where they wanted to get married. It was truly the trip of a lifetime. The couple arrived in Australia in January 2001 and Joanne landed a job in a bookstore while Peter got a job selling furniture. Joanne loved Sydney and she met a couple of really good friends. She really enjoyed the nightlife and they actually extended their original three-month stay to six months. But Peter was more restless of the two and he just like wanted to get back to traveling. Peter bought a orange Volkswagen T2 Combi. Think of it as like a hippie van, kind of like the mystery machine, but orange. And they decided to visit Melbourne, Adelaide, Darwin before ending up in Brisbane where they would sell the van and then head to New Zealand. So the van was equipped with a fridge, a bed, a sink, a gas stove, and their ride served as like the perfect travel vehicle for the couple to just hit the road and explore Australia. They left for Melbourne on June 25th, 2001 and drove along the previously mentioned Stewart Highway, which I said, remember, runs exactly like right through the middle of the country. They drove in an extremely desolated area of the highway near Uluru, nearly an 18-hour drive from Port Augusta. And keep in mind that their van did not go over 50 miles per hour or 80 kilometers per hour. Now, around this time, three British tourists experienced like a really strange incident on along the Stewart Highway. Also, they were in a van. Two girls drove in the front. 
Well, one was driving and one was in the passenger seat while their male companion slept in the back when they noticed that there was another car. Now, this is kind of weird because the Stewart Highway did not have a lot of people driving on it. It was extremely desolate. So it was kind of exciting to see another car. But then this car started tailgating them and they just started to worry. At times, the car attempted to pass them, but did not, and as they sped up their van, they also sped up. They sped up to, like, drive parallel from them, and noticed the man was just staring at them as they were driving, and finally, the man sped up, passed them, and drove away, and they just kind of all sighed a bit of relief. After a while, the three tourists saw the same man pulled over on the side of the road with a man standing outside of his car smoking a cigarette. A minute later, the man started tailing them again. The man matched the speeds of the tourist again and started making like really odd gestures, including pretending to shoot them with a handgun. Now, while the male tourist who had been laying down during this whole encounter finally awoke and sat up, the man drove off. Like, it was super creepy. They were super creeped out about this whole entire incident. And they wanted to report the incident to the police, but they just thought, eh, it was just a weird thing. But after they heard about the incident with Joanne and Peter, they did report it. So, back to Joanne and Peter. They had made their way to a campground close to Uluru. In fact, it was the same campground where the A Dingo Ate My Baby case took place, which I'll probably cover in a future episode. So the next day, they took a morning hike to the famous rock. After this hike, the couple drove an hour to Mount Olga for another hike. And while they were there, they met another couple, and all four of them made their way to Kings Canyon and then to Alice Springs, where the couple said their goodbyes. Now, Joanne and Peter had to fix up their van, and their time in Alice Springs actually coincided with a racing festival called the Camel Cup, which sounds incredible to me it's where literally camels race each other so kind of a cool experience to see so they stayed in alice springs for a couple days before making the 15 like 16 hour journey to darwin on the stewart highway for geographical reference alice springs is just south of darwin which lies due north On Saturday, July 14th, 2001, Peter retrieved his car from the mechanic and then went to an accountant to inquire getting back taxes paid while he was working in Sydney. Joanne spent the morning in a library where she checked some emails and she even called a friend back in Sydney. They ate and then went to the Camel Cup where they had such a good time, which I can imagine, that they lost track of time and ended up leaving for their next destination, Devil's Marbles, about 250 miles away near dusk. They left later than they intended to. It was dark outside. They really didn't want to drive in the dark, but they figured, oh well, we're just going to go. Joanne recalls stopping at a blink-and-you'll-miss-it town, a tea tree, around 6 p.m. to share a joint, and they would switch drivers. So Peter was now driving, and they passed through the super-duper small town of Barrow Creek, which was 60 miles north of Tea Tree. When Peter noticed headlights in his rearview mirror. Like noted before, the road does not have much traffic, but neither Peter or Joanne really thought 
much of it. And the headlights from the other car, however, got closer and closer, and Peter was having trouble seeing. A man in a white Toyota with a green canvas canopy drove along Peter and gestured for him to pull over, mouthing the word exhaust. Having just had exhaust issues with the van, Peter pulled over and spoke to the man who stated he had seen sparks coming from their exhaust pipe. The two men walked behind the vehicle and Joanne assumed the driver's seat to rev the engine. Joanne heard a bang and she first thought it was the van that had backfired, but in court later she described that it was probably a gunshot. The man appeared at the window of the van and pointed a gun at Joanne. To quote Joanne, she said, I just kept thinking this was not happening to me. I could not believe that this was happening. I I felt alone. I kept shouting for Pete and I thought I was going to die. I was more scared of being raped than being shot by the man. Next, Joanne realized that Peter was probably shot and she wanted to escape but the man overwhelms her and secures her hands behind her back with cable ties and masking tape. Joanne screams as he tries to tie her ankles and the man hits her and drags her to the back of his car. Joanne hears noises like a dragging sound outside. As the noises became distinct and obviously terrified, Joanne escapes the car, runs, and hides in the bushes. The man did look for her, shining a flashlight, but soon gives up and starts her car and tries to find her with his headlights aimed at the bush in a last-ditch effort. Using chapstick to try to remove the handcuffs, she fails, but she manages to maneuver herself so the handcuffs were in front of her, opposed to behind her back. And Joanne hid in the bush for what she believes to be five hours before flagging someone down who took her to the nearest town. But given the desolation, it took the police four hours to reach Joanne's location. They take her statement and set up roadblocks on the Stewart Highway about 10 hours after the crime, which it wasn't their fault that it was 10 hours, but like, I don't think setting up roadblocks 10 hours after the crime occurred would have really helped much. I mean, the perpetrator could be in another state by then, another territory, or he could have even left Australia by that point. Now, despite taking 10 hours to start the investigation, the police caught a break when CCTV footage of sh- showed a man at a truck stop in Alice Springs at 12.38 a.m. who fit the description that Joanne gave to police. Vehicle being driven by this person matched the car described by Joanne, a white Toyota with a green canvas canopy. In the initial interview, the police took the handcuffs and her clothing as well as photographed Joanne's injuries. And Joanne described her attacker as being in his mid-40s, tall with a long face, sunken eyes, shoulder-length hair with some gray in it and an upside-down U-shaped mustache. The police released a sketch of the man as long as a, a couple months later, they released a sketch of the man without the mustache and his long hair. 
The next morning at 7 a.m., a a search group went to go look out for Peter. Arriving at the location, they found a dirt-covered blood pool as well as the couple's van some 80 meters off the side of the road. The police later tested and determined that the blood actually did belong to Peter. And they also found Joanne's footprints, but nothing else. So the police decided to call some aboriginal trackers to help look for evidence. The press got wind of the situation and the case became huge in Australia as well as the UK and other parts of the world. The press did not like Joanne, and she really didn't help her case. She failed to talk to the press for 10 days, and when she finally spoke, she wore a pink tank top with a zebra bra that showed underneath, and the shirt had the words cheeky monkey on it, and the press ripped her for this look, and the public agreed. Joanne later claimed that the police had confiscated most of her clothes, so she really didn't have any other tops to wear. Like, she was borrowing clothes from friends who had come from the UK, and it really wasn't her choice that she was wearing this shirt. The media implied inconsistencies with Joanne's story had existed and questioned whether the attack even happened. Three weeks later, the police questioned her and sort of accused her of knowing more than she stated and even suggested her involvement. The next day, Joanne flew home to England and the press saw this as her just running away. Later, the investigation police found DNA on Joanne's shirt that she was wearing the night of the attack, as well as the handcuffs that did not match either Joanne or Peter. So this fact started to convince people that she had no involvement in the disappearance of Peter. The Australian DNA register failed to yield a match to the DNA, and a new search of the area surrounding the crime scene yielded Joanne's chapstick, and the public began to rip the Northern Territory police over their shabby investigation. Pressure forced officials to name a new investigative team, and they started with the CCTV footage of the car seen at that truck stop the night of the attack. After viewing the footage, they pulled a couple of records of everyone who owned the car or a similar car and started to compile a suspect list. One Bradley John Murdoch emerged as a viable suspect. No stranger to trouble, Bradley was born in 1958 in Western Australia, in a city just north of Perth. Bradley provided quite a surprise to his older parents who had already raised two kids and they really did not care to raise another child. So Bradley just really didn't have any supervision and he just wasn't a good kid. Young Bradley had issues with authority. He had dropped out of high school. He became involved with gangs and with drugs alcohol, and illegal guns. At age 21, he received a suspended sentence for a hit and run, and he, but he seemed to find a calling as a car mechanic and had a trucking business, but having dropped out of high school, he really didn't have the skill set to run this business, and it eventually went bankrupt. 
So Bradley decided to go back to the gang life and he got involved in drug smuggling. He would take speed and drive up to long periods of time while hauling the drugs, which made him like a good employee, I guess. Rumors state that he joined a KKK chapter in Australia and this just amazing citizen decided to have a really racist tattoo of an aboriginal on his arm. Yeah, not a great guy. And so in 1995, he thought it would be a good idea to take a gun to a party hosted by aboriginals, but authorities disagreed with this, and he received a 15-month sentence. His time in prison did not change his ways, and prior to the incident of Peter and Joanne, he had been arrested and charged with seven counts of abduction and rape. Honor among the criminal element does not last long because the police caught a big break when they arrested Bradley's roommate who decided to talk in hopes of receiving a lighter sentence for whatever crime he was being arrested for. The good roommate states that he witnessed Bradley making handcuffs like the ones that was used on Joanne. And the police also learned that Bradley had a brother named Gary and they received a DNA sample from Gary and matched it to uh, the DNA that was taken at the crime scene of Joanne and Peter. But good citizenship did not run in the Murdoch family and Gary gave Bradley the heads up so Bradley ran. But police found him in August 2002 in southern Australia and Joanne had independently identified Bradley as well. The police believed that they had their man. The Australians' authorities held a committal trial, which can best be described as the equivalent to a the grand jury system in the United States, which determines if there's even enough evidence to go to trial. So that's what a grand jury trial does and that, in the U.S. and that's what a committal trial in Australia does. The defense tried to argue that the DNA on the handcuffs was too small to be admitted, but the argument did not hold sway and Bradley went to criminal trial. The defense called Joanne's character into question during this trial, having discovered that she had an affair while she was in Sydney, and Joanne had even contacted this man shortly after Peter had disappeared. The defense also questioned her ability to move the handcuffs from the back of her body to the front of her body. So in not a good moment for the defense, Joanne actually demonstrated this in court. The defense decided not to call her character into question after this really foolish move. The defense also claimed that Peter remained alive and that two men stated that they had seen Peter and another man in New South Wales after the alleged attack. Nevertheless, the jury convicted Bradley Murdoch of the murder of Peter Falconio and the assaulting of Joanne Lees in the depriving her of her liberty. Bradley Murdoch was sentenced to 28 years and Murdoch still protests his innocence and he will never see the outside world unless he actually admits to what he did and hopefully he could give the family of Peter uh, his body so they could have a proper burial for him. So what happened to Peter Falconio? Whenever a body does not emerge, conspiracy theories galore manifest. 
This case did not escape these conspiracy theories. In the documentary Murder in the Outback, Vince Miller, who actually rescued Joanne, revealed new information. He claimed to see a suspicious scene with two men standing beside a red car just prior to Joanne jumping out of the bush. Slowing down to see if they required help, Miller recalled how the men appeared to bundle another man who looked like Jelly into the vehicle. Miller states, there was something they didn't want me to see. I'm fairly sure the guy in the middle very well could have been Peter Falconio. Police took this statement from Miller after taking Joanne to Barrow Creek, but claims in the documentary that the police lost the first two pages of his statement. And he said the police asked him to sign a replacement of the two pages, which did not mention this scene with the man like Jelly. But Miller didn't really say anything and he just felt pressured to oblige to sign the statement. The documentary also revealed that one of Peter's colleagues had come forward to the Australian authorities to suggest that Peter could have faked his own death. This witness states, quote, There is no doubt in my mind that Peter is capable of carrying out this scam. I would not in the least be surprised if he attempted to defraud a life insurance policy just for the money. Before he went away, he told me that he'd taken out a policy, end quote. In the statement, he describes himself as a friend of Peter, but this good friend calls Peter Dodgy Peter because he was always scamming. As long as Peter's body remains unfound, conspiracy theorists will state that Peter could still be alive. Former defense lawyer Andrew Frazier explained the friend and colleague said Peter joked about people trying to scam the company he worked for. The Australian police also discounted the theory that Peter faked his own death. A former journalist who covered the case said, quote, There's no way a son could have faked his own death and maintained his absence for so long knowing that his family was upset. That proves to me that the insurance scam allegation was perhaps unfounded. But the obvious most likely happened, in my opinion, that Bradley Murdoch killed Peter and assaulted Joanne. I mean, I just can't get past the DNA on Joanne's shirt. In the past few years, Joanne has explored a site near the crime scene for a memorial for Peter. Joanne also discovered that she has a half-sister in Sydney and is trying to get Australian citizenship to be closer to her. She also wrote a book about her life and the attack called No Turning Back. Today, Joanne works as a social worker and recently spoke about events stating, and I quote, Pete lost his life on that night, but I lost mine too, end quote. She returned to the site of the murder as she tried to get into the attacker's mind, claiming it was because I loved Pete so much. Well, this completes the 12th episode of a crime story podcast, and I would really love to hear your thoughts about this case. Do you think Peter is still alive? Do you think Bradley Murdoch is guilty? Or do you think that like Joanne is involved in the attack in any way? 
I would love to hear your thoughts. You can comment on a crime story Instagram at a crime story pod where I will be posting images from today's story. Or you can even comment on a crime story podcast on Facebook or at a crime story pod on Twitter. My website is a crimestorypodcast.com where you can listen to the podcast as well as read a transcript of today's story underneath the blog tab. Or you can even comment or see additional photos of a crime story podcast on YouTube. And I have also started a TikTok under the name a crime story podcast. So make sure to go check it out. Thank you so much for listening. And if you could please leave a review of the podcast under Spotify and Apple Podcasts, it helps others find the show. And if you could also tell a friend about a crime story podcast, I would be forever grateful. I hope to see you next episode where I will be covering a case from Canada that actually my best friend here in Paris suggested that I would do, so you won't want to miss it. A Crime Story is hosted, created, written, and produced by me, Kaylin Lois. Sources for today's episode can be found on my website, acrimestorypodcast.com. Theme music is by Ross Butchen, and additional story editing is brought to you by my father, Mike. Thank you so much for listening to A Crime Story, and remember to stay safe at home and abroad. (music) 